let's open up in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for the opportunity to be here. And we just pray that you be glorified, not only today in Sunday school, but in our service as well. Help us to place you first and foremost. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Thank all of you guys for being here. And I know Wendy's floating around. Other people will trickle in. But we're smack dab in the middle of the Reformation now, right? For those of you that have been floating around, we're in the middle of the Reformation. We've talked about, we took a whole week, we'll talk about Martin Luther. We talked about, last week we, we talked about uh, how, how it kicked in in Zurich and, and some different reform movements that were coming in. And uh, about Cortes and, and the Aztecs last time. Today we're going to talk a little bit about um, a, a new martyrdom. Um, if you remember, throughout those first couple of centuries of the church, there was a lot of martyrdom going on. There's a lot of people dying for their faith because uh, Christianity just wasn't popular amongst the people in charge of things. We got, um, we, we had a number of different groups like the Albigensians, the Waldensians, different people over the years that have had crusades thrown against them, but nothing at the, at the, at the level that we're going to see here in the, in the Reformation, which is, which is kind of sad, uh, because we, we like to think of history in nice, clean, compartmentalized sections. You know, uh, the Middle Ages, that's the Dark Ages, that's bad. And then the Renaissance, that's the good time, where everything woke up, and you go, nah, it doesn't work like that. The Reformation, that's when everybody got happy, and that's when all the reformers and all the Protestants loved one another and, and fixed things. You know, we start slaughtering each other all over the place. I make a statement here. Revelation tends to, or revolution, revolution tends to breed revolution. What does that mean, do you think? Uh, well, like with the um, French Revolution, learning from the American Revolution, learning from the, uh, one country does it, yeah, you got a bunch of people going, wait, we can do that? You know, that actually works, and you never know where it's going to go. Because like the American Revolution, we're spoiled, we're biased. But we like to look at it and say, hey, that turned out pretty good. French Revolution, we can look at it and say, you know, um, that was really bloody and horrible, actually. You know, it was just, it, they, they took it and ran with this in directions we would never have run with it. Um, but as I was going to say here, once, you, once you've torn down barriers, especially if your focus has been on tearing down barriers. That's all you know how to do. That's all you know how to do. And you don't necessarily know what to replace it with. You go, well, I know that's wrong. Okay, what are you going to do, Martin? Oh, I hadn't really thought that far. I, I just posted 95 theses of what the Catholic Church was doing wrong. And they kicked me out. And I have successfully shown all the things they're doing wrong. And, uh, hey, Philip Melanchthon, could you help me figure out, you know, what we can do here? So you, 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 you kind of have to figure out what you're going to put in, in place. And it tends to open the door for everybody else to do their own revolutions, going, well, if we can do that. And that may or may not be well received by the first revolutionaries. Once you had a revolution, I mean, uh, in fact, this is one of the arguments that the South used in the Civil War, going, well, wait a minute. We agreed that if we didn't like the government, I mean, a hundred years ago, we we revolted. And Washington said, yeah, well, you don't get to do that this time. It, yes, we all revolted against England, but you don't get to revolt against us. It doesn't work like that. But there were a lot of politicians in the South that said, but I thought we were built on this. So it's not always well received. So, to pick up where we were last time, 1523, Ulrich Zwingli has... has Hit this has, has hit Zurich hard. He's got this very Bible-based church. He's like, we're reforming everything. We're coming at this from a new angle. Booyah, right? Swingley's been kind of a booyah guy up to this point. There was an, another Catholic pastor, not a priest, but a pastor, uh, the guy who would uh, be giving a homily on a <laughs> Sunday, a guy named Balthasar Hudmeyer that we talked about at the very end last time, who said, you know, Logically, given what we're doing, let me take this to the next logical step. I'm going, because I'm a good Swinglian. He would refer to himself as a Swinglian. I'm followed with Swingli. He said, all right, everybody keeps talking about sola fide. We're saved by faith alone, not by anything that we do, right? You don't earn your salvation. It's just by an internal relationship with Christ. Great. And we keep emphasizing sola scriptura, saying, you know, we keep adding 
not just traditions, but doctrines based on traditions. It's not, tradition in and of itself isn't bad, but you shouldn't base your doctrine on tradition. You should base your doctrine on scripture, right? So if we're doing something that doesn't come from scripture, or even worse, that clashes with scripture, we should stop doing it. You might or might not agree with that first half, but the second half you should. You know, it's okay to do things maybe that aren't from scripture, but certainly not something that's going to clash with scripture. And he says, Swingley argued that if, let's say, um, let's say uh, Nicholas wants to get baptized. Well, before I just baptize him, I should chat with him so he understands what baptism is about, shouldn't I? If there's a kid that's gotten to this point where he hasn't been baptized, you should instruct him. If we suddenly found out that uh, Anna Weathorn has never been baptized, before we just baptize her, we should probably chat with her to make sure she understands what this is, right? Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, if Scripture teaches that baptism is an expression of internal faith, it's not that the action saves you, then it really should be for those people who have faith, if it's a reflection of their internal faith. If Swingley says they should be instructed before they're baptized, then, then we should instruct them. It should be for people who get rightly instructed. That just logically follows, doesn't it? And logically, it should be restricted to believers then, and not infants, because you can't instruct an infant, and it's not reflecting an infant's faith. Now, whether you agree with him or not, do you see the logical progression that the Tootmeyer says? It's, it's like, well, this, this just makes sense. So, even if that means maybe we have to rebaptize somebody, because maybe they were baptized as an infant, but if we agree that that wasn't really what baptism was about, maybe we need to rebaptize people. This is because they weren't really baptized to begin with. That was his take on it, which is what bore out the Anna Baptist movement. My brother, uh, he was a history teacher in, in high school, and so he knows everything about history. I know this because I spent two days with him this week. I'm sorry, what? No, no, he knows everything. He, he, he instructed me on, on, on church history so that I could bring this to the, to the uh, Sunday school class today. But he kept talking about the anti-Baptists. And I'm like, no, no, they're, they're not against baptism. They're the Anabaptists. He's like, no, no, it's the anti-Baptists. I'm like, no. I'm pretty sure it's the Anabaptist. What's the difference between an anti-Baptist who says bad baptism and an Anabaptist? What does the word Anabaptist mean? Does anyone know? Gonna, uh, go ahead. I'm, I'm going to guess that it means to be baptized at the right time instead of not being baptized at all. Good, good guess. That's a really good guess. Is Anna after? So after you believe you're baptized? Ooh, very good guess. Ooh, another really good guess. Again, an Anabaptist is somebody who says we're rebaptizing people, which includes everything you guys were just were just saying. But the Anabaptist sat there and said, if you've already been baptized as an infant, I don't think that counts. So we're rebaptizing you. Now, what's interesting is Swingley would have agreed with everything up to this point. Other people would agree to everything up to this point, maybe. Other people totally didn't agree with this. Every, everybody's trying to figure out why they believe what they believe. Right? Because it's the Reformation and everything's up for grabs. Twingley says, that is so not what I was saying. You, that is not logical at all. You're a heretic. Because, you know, that's what reformers do, right? We do, oh, you know the Catholic Church with their domineering everybody else but me is wrong? Let's all believe this. Yeah, or we can take it this way. Just goofy, and I'm going to domineer and say what you're saying is wrong. So, he petitioned Archduke Fernando of Austria. Fernando of Austria, okay? Because at this point, Austria is controlled by the Spanish, right? They speak Spanish in Austria. I love history. You just got to remember, there was a time when they spoke German in Spain, right? So this is cool. But it's kind of payback. Um, so... Fernando uh, uh, follows Twingley's advice and arrests and tortures Hookmeyer. Not just tortures, so that he will recant his horrible, horrible heresy. And Hookmeyer says, wait, 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 wait! I have documented this. Let me show you multiple quotes from Swingley that lead to this. I'm a good debater. I like that. I'm like, yes! He said this, he said this, he said this. All this leads to this. Swingley says, you're taking it out of context provided no alternative interpretations of these things, you said you shouldn't 
baptize somebody that you haven't instructed. That's not what I meant. What does you shouldn't baptize somebody you haven't instructed mean? Well, not infants. I'm not talking about that. We should totally still baptize infants. I don't get that. Anyway, so Hubmeyer, who wrote how, about how confused he was, is like, I don't, I don't get why this is even going on, was found guilty of heresy and was tortured on the rack for a couple of days until he finally recanted everything, said, I was wrong, I'm totally wrong, I'm very sorry, we should baptize infants. Uh, Zwingli's absolutely right, I was bad. Welcome to the Reformation. Right? This isn't the Catholics doing this. This is, uh, this is reformed people. Then again, Zwingli himself, remember last week where he's like, we're chucking this, we're chucking this, we're chucking this. The Catholic Church comes down hard and he says, oh, hey, we, I tell you what, let's reinstate the Mass that we specifically said is bad and contrary to what we should be doing in a worship service. No, he's putting that back in because he got too much, too much hassle. It's one thing to be all novel and nifty when you've got new ideas, but once once the honeymoon period is over and people are like, no, seriously, we're not doing that anymore? What, really? Now you're going to get in trouble. So he waffles on that. But you've got to remember, this is what's going on now. This is what's happening here in the, in the Reformation because nobody knows exactly what to believe. We have gotten away from the Bible that much. It, nobody's been reading this thing for 1,500 years. So we've gotten away from Scripture that much that even the people who are theologians, even the people who are priests in the Catholic Church who have been teaching theology, they're all coming out and going, I really don't know what to believe. I, I really don't know what is truth. Which, of course, the Catholic Church jumps in and says, how can you guys claim to be reformers when you don't even know what truth is? Doesn't that suggest that you should you should lean on the Catholic Church and our truth? I've said this before in different ways. Just because you have simplified something and made it more clear does not mean that you've necessarily made it more accurate, right? You ask me to explain the internal combustion engine, and I say, hamster. <coughs> Thank you. That clarifies it a great deal. Yeah, but it's wrong. Yeah, just because it made it simpler to understand does not mean necessarily you're right. But everybody's trying to figure out what to understand. They said, I can totally see what's wrong with the Catholic Church. I can see what they've done wrong. I see the errors that they're teaching. But I don't know exactly what it is that we think. For instance, 1521, there's a guy named Thomas Munster, and he comes uh, out, of a, uh, out of a reform movement from Zwickau that preaches every man is equal. There's, you shouldn't, uh, shouldn't think that somebody is better just because they're rich or just because they're, uh, they're royalty. We, we believe that believers should be baptized, not infants. We believe in Christ's imminent return. He's coming soon. Look at, the, look at the world. How can you possibly look at Rodrigo Borgia, at Pope Leo, at you know, the succession of horrible things, and not realize Christ should be coming back in our generation? We're obviously in the end times. Now, that means he's one of Hugmeier's confederates, right? They totally agree. You see, no, 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 no. Munster said it's a sin to rebaptize. If somebody was baptized as an infant, that counts. It is a sin to rebaptize them. You're a horrible person for doing that, which means he's not an Anabaptist, right? He's a Baptist, but not an Anabaptist. And, 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 and you might sit there and say, well, that's, that seems weird. Why does that make sense to him? What, why, if he says you shouldn't baptize infants, you should baptize believers... But if they were baptized as an infant, it would be wrong to baptize them as believers. Anybody want to? Anybody want to come in defense of that? Oh, come on! Well, if he believes in the uh, Catholic Creed, there's one baptism. Thank you. That's exactly what he talked about. He's like, there's one baptism, and if the Catholic Church screwed it up and baptized an infant, it still counts as the one baptism. Um, actually, technically, this is. Uh, the covenants take on this. They're like, any kind of baptism that anybody wants to do, the pastor should, should do. Any kind of baptism is valid, except rebaptism. That's the official take of the, of, of the covenant, is that if anybody comes up and says, I'd like to get baptized, I should do it, unless they'd already been baptized as an infant, in which case I should say no. So it, that's very minstrish. And there's a logic behind it, because you go, well, but you're undermining the other baptism if you Whereas Hubmeier would say, but it was, quote, unquote, baptism. Just because you moistened the infant doesn't mean it counts as baptism. 
you can see where they're coming at the same basic question from two different understandable vantage points, right? Okay. I just don't want anybody to walk away going, well, this is the only one that's right. He also helped lead something called the German Peasants' War. He, he, uh, Hugmeier is preaching strict nonviolence. Münster's like, take up a sword, man. We're building our own commune. We're setting this up where we are leading, Christians are leading the way it should be, following the continued revelation of God. Because like the Church of Christ, they believe that the Bible ends with a comma, not a period. God continues to give his revelation. God continues to evolve theology. It's continually changing. Um, you've seen this, haven't you? This, this thing from the Church of Christ? Oh, you should look around Churches of Christ. Uh, the United Church of Christ, they'll have various versions of this, but this is a big symbol here, this comma. And, and uh, they quote Gracie Allen, the prophet Gracie Allen. Never place a period where God has placed a comma. Therefore, maybe Paul thought homosexuality was bad. But the world changes, right? And thus, theology changes. Pardon me? I used oh, yeah. to be in the United Church of Christ. That's why I left is because of something There you go. But I didn't, understand, I didn't realize that they used the comma kind of their excuse for things. Canon is still open. God is still speaking. In fact, that's, the, that's one of the main things that you hear as a, as a catchphrase in the Church of Christ. God is still speaking. I would agree that God is still speaking. They mean that slightly differently than I do. Anyway, Munster also said, you know what? Mary is the queen of heaven. She's the sinless mediatrix between us and God. Because how can we as sinful people uh, interact with God? We'd need some sort of sinless mediator. And uh, who, could, who could that possibly be? It couldn't be Jesus because he's God. So who could I? Pardon me? Oh, yeah. You had a couple of Mariolatrous popes up at this point, and Munster comes along and, and uh, resurrects this, this particular viewpoint. Because of her sinlessness, uh, Mary can actually usher in a new age where us, in our sinlessness, can approach God. So, so you go, well, okay, that's not quite the same thing Hugh is talking about, is it? Different sorts of things. Everybody's coming at it from this different angles. Luther changes the foundations of dogma, but the original Lutheran Church, High Lutheran Church today, still looks way Catholic. I mean, it's it, they kept a lot of the same stuff. Um, Twingley said, "No, no, no. The trappings are bad, unless you get into a lot of trouble, and then you'd start putting the trappings back in." But in general, trappings are bad. Hubmeier goes, "No, no, no, no. Throw it all out and rebuild from the Scripture. Let's do that. Emphasize believer baptism, even if it requires that you have to rebaptize somebody." Munster goes, "No, no, 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 no. You can't rebaptize people." Plus, you should fight. Fight if you need to fight. Again, Reformed theology up for grabs right now, right? Everybody's kind of trying to figure this out. and they're trying. You can see where different ones are coming at this. You go, how much do we actually change? How much tradition should we throw out? How much tradition should we hold on to? There's nothing inherently bad about tradition, but if we make tradition our dogma, maybe we're doing this wrong. It's going to take some time to sort this out. We're still, still sorting this out. But, uh, but people are trying to figure out how this works. Nonetheless, at this point, it's probably helpful at this stage in Reformed theology to stop and go, well, let's look at Anabaptism, because it keeps popping up. Um, there's a lot of people that are being inspired by Swingley, saying, you know, he's got the right idea. Let's go back to Scripture. If we have to chuck something, we need to do that. Um, baptism should ideally mean something, but it's not something that, that itself... Uh, uh, has some sort of spiritual change in your life. Uh, communion means something, but it's not something that uh, gives us some sort of uh, mystical grace. I think Swingley's on to something, but we still need to chew on this. There were other new Anabaptist leaders, even around Zurich, like Conrad Grable or a Catholic priest named Jörg vom Haus Jakob. <coughs> George from the House of Jacob, right? And uh, they also call him Jörg Blaurock or George Bluecoat or George Blaurock if you really want to mix and match your languages. Because he was wearing a blue coat when he got baptized. And, and it became famous where it was like, who is that guy? The guy in the blue coat. And so they started calling him Bluecoat guy. So he's George Bluecoat, George Blaurock. This Catholic priest that did this and a scholar named Felix Montz 
all these guys, and Megan saw this picture, she's like, it's Chris Hemsworth, it's Thor. But <laughs> <laughs> once you see that, you can't like unsee that. Oh, yeah, that's what I was thinking now. So Felix Mons will be played by Chris Hemsworth for the rest of the movie. <laughs> but they all engage Swingley, even though they say, we're following Swingley, and we're, we're inspired by him, but they're, they're, they're all engaged in public debate going, is this the right way of doing this? And not just about baptism, but about the concept of a state church. Because you're born in Switzerland, you're a Zwingliist. Because you're born in Germany, you're a Lutheran. Doesn't that fly in the face of everything we've just been talking about in terms of you're saved by your faith, not your nationality? We just said you're not saved just because you're born a Catholic. You can't say you're saved just because you're born a German. Think this through. Local authorities tend to decide with Swingley, but with them being Catholic and Swingliist and all that kind of stuff. And they demanded at one point that all, all babies be baptized within a week. You have one week to baptize all the babies, otherwise your family's getting kicked out of Zurich. Uh, we're taking this seriously. Because this, this is what the Bible means. Even if you're a paid Baptist, you've got to sit there and go, this isn't right. You know, get your baby baptized so that you don't have to be kicked out of Zurich. That's what Scripture's talking about with baptism. This is what this is about. You know, Swingley, as much as you've been preaching one thing, you're, you're not living this outright. You're, you're trying to figure it out, but you're not doing it right. And every time they had one of these debates, they'd have more house churches pop up. Kind of like what we talked about in China. things. These underground churches that keep popping up going, you know, I, I just think we might be doing this wrong. 1525, George Blaurock stood up from prayer in one of these secret meetings and said, Conrad Grable, would you baptize me? I was baptized as an infant, and I don't think it was anything other than a priest moistening me. I need to make a baptism on confession of faith. And then after Grable baptized him, Blaurock, because he was the pastor, said, I will, I will baptize anybody else based on their confession of faith. If you express faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I will baptize you. We will do this the way Scripture tells us. This is kind of huge. Nobody done this before. This is huge. And the church that they, that they founded was called the Swiss Brethren. You're going to hear this come up different times. You're going to hear, even hear the term the Brethren, the Brethren Church, the this Brethren. This, all of it is stemming from George Bluecoat making a decision at a secret house meeting going, baptize me. Now even here, when we say this, they dribbled water on his head. That's right. They dribbled water on his head. We're not even to the Anabaptists later go, you know the word means dunk. I think we ought to dunk. And in pure, clear, Reformation style, other Anabaptists who drizzled looked at them and went, heretic. Because that's the Reformation, right? If you disagree, you're a heretic. Anyway, even if you find yourself drifting paid Baptist, I'm not trying to preach Anabaptism here. Even if you go, I, I think it's okay to baptize infants, this is huge. You should find this a huge moment. Because what this is is somebody saying, um, wait, why is this a huge moment? I, I have a friend who's Methodist, and she will not be rebaptized because her parents baptized her as a baby. Okay. And when I went through the decision to do the baptism, even though I was also, she felt like it was disrespecting her parents' decision mm -hmm. that they baptized her. So on, on a societal or cultural level within this is a, a huge step because it could be seen as flying in the face of tradition, flying in the face of everything your, your family had done. But on a positive sense, from our from church history, yes, Emily. Um, faith in Christianity is no longer Christendom, whereas this is something that everyone always does. It's a personal decision. Shiny nickel for you. Yes, whatever else you want to believe about, should you dribble, should you dunk, should you baptize infants, should you not, this is the first time you get this, this reformed focus during the Reformation on we need to make a personal decision for Christ. This is about my walk with the Lord, not about what my parents did, not about where I was born, not about what a priest or a pastor decided for me. This is me praying, looking at Scripture and going, I need to do some specific things because of a personal walk with the Lord. So whatever else you want to do to apply this and, and other things, look at George Bluecoat and go, George, you rock. Because this idea of saying, we need to make a personal decision, even if 
even if I have to say, I think I've been doing stuff wrong, to say I need to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Anyway, 526, next year. Huge year. Remember 1492, big year? Yeah, it's another big year. This is a year that Luther wrote uh, a book against sacramentarianists. What is it, sacramentarian? What's sacra sacramentarianism? Gazunai. Oh. All right. Like Twingley, the sacramentarians believe that Christ is not physically present in the communion elements. He's present, but not physically. The Catholics and the Lutherans say there's a genuine physical presence. You're devouring Christ. They said, no, no, they're, they're sacraments. We do these things because they're holy actions. Okay? That's what a sacrament is. A holy action. Um, his spiritual essence is there, and, and we receive this, uh, uh, this spiritual blessing, a, a mystical grace. God changes us every time we take communion. But Jesus is not himself physically devoured in the service. Because that's what the Mass is, right? Every week you need to go to Mass so that you can physically devour Jesus and have him in your life. Because otherwise, he's gone. Okay. And they're like, I don't think that's right. That's what a sacramentarian did. Luther said uh, that dilutes the, the grace provided in the Eucharist. There's this wonderful grace of having God's physical presence in your life, and you're removing that. And the sacramentarians go, I don't think we are. Number one, because we think you do get a grace. Number two, because I don't think we need to devour Jesus. In fact, Zwingli said, but the flesh profits nothing. We don't need to keep devouring Christ's flesh, do we? But number three, Zwingli would argue, like we just argued a little bit ago, just because something clarifies something, it doesn't mean it's true, right? Hamster. That's not how your car works, even though that might make it make more sense to you, right? Just because you feel like Christ's physical presence gives you more grace, that doesn't mean that that means he's physically there. I'm not removing anything that's actually there. You're inserting stuff that isn't. You can see Swingley's argument. Luther says, heretic, right? Because if you disagree with each other, you're heretics. That's very clear. Now, what's interesting is, in Luther's time, to be a sacramentarian is to be a liberal who diminishes the mystical holiness of the Eucharist by denying part of the divine presence. You are saying there's not as much God here. It's a sacrament. It is not a sacrifice of Jesus. It is a holy action that we do to receive grace. Okay? Nowadays, um, when we talk about somebody being a sacramentarian, we tend to talk about someone who upholds the divine presence, which I find tremendously ironic that in 500 years this term has completely flip-flopped to what it means. And the reason is that there's a debate, and you've heard it before, we've talked about this before, where some people think of uh, things like communion as a sacrament, a holy action that conveys a mystical grace on those who take part because God is uniquely present in the ritual. So you do it as a sacrament. And other people that use the word ordinance, you do it because you are ordained. You are called to do this. You don't do it to receive some sort of mystical grace. You do it to remember Christ and what he did. Remember we've talked about the difference between sacrament and ordinance? So, the irony is, whether you're a sacramentarian, let's say you're a sacramentarian, are you a dangerous rebel who denies the presence of Christ, i.e. the physical presence of Christ? Or are you a dangerous reactionary who upholds the presence of Christ, i.e. the spiritual presence of Christ? Because that's really just a matter of dates. If you, were saying, if you sit there and say, I think there's a mystical presence of Christ in the communion. You're standing here in 520s? They go, you liberal, denying the physical presence. You stand here in, the, in, in, in like our church in the, in the 2000 teens, people might go, okay, well, I think you're kind of holding on to something. I, I, I'm not sure there is a mystical presence of, of Christ in, 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 the, in the communion. Which side of it do you flip to? What's the date? Because this term has flip-flopped in its usage. Just in case any of you are ever reading going, oh, but he's saying it's a sacrament. Why is he against sacraments? He's against it only being sacraments and not being a sacrifice. Does that make sense? Okay. Same year, 
William Tyndale published an English translation of the New Testament. That's kind of big. Why is that kind of big? Okay. He had been a linguist who had been studying at Cambridge, which is where Erasmus had taught. Remember Erasmus, who published his own Greek New Testament? He's like, I, I, I want a really good Greek New Testament. I want a really good modern Latin uh, version of the New Testament. I want to make sure we have the best translations possible. Under those auspices, Tyndale's been studying at Cambridge. So you can, or Tyndale, uh, yeah, uh, I said Tydale there. I don't know why that is. Tyndale says, so I think we need a good translation of this so that people can read it. Now, the more he read the Bible, the more he looked at it, the more he's like, I, uh, I think we're doing this wrong, strangely enough. Yeah, we keep saying that, don't we? The more people read the Bible, the more like, hey, it's like King Josiah. Hey, have, we, have you read this thing? I think we're doing this wrong. So, he had a very memorable exchange with a Catholic priest at one point. The priest argued that it's inherently dangerous to critique the church, all these reformers running around critiquing the church, because to do so, by definition, critiques the Pope. You can't critique the Pope. He sits in the magic chair, right? Which I think Lucy's sitting in right now. Lucy's the Pope, Pope Lucy. <laughs> but when he sits in the magic chair, he can't be wrong. You are critiquing Christ's vicarious presence, his vicar, vicarious, Christ's vicarious presence on earth. We're better to be without God's laws than the Pope's, the clergyman argued, because you've got to follow the Pope, right? You don't know how to follow, Nikki, you don't know how to follow God, do you? You can't talk to God. It's illegal for you to pray, isn't it? You can't talk to God without a priest. It's not like you'd understand God. So if you had to choose between God's uninterpretable law or the Pope's clear law, you should follow the Pope, right? Makes logical sense. Especially if you could be killed. Especially if you could be killed, yeah. But again, if you say, well, if I agree that God's law is un uninterpretable, if I agree that the Pope sits in the magic chair and is always right, if I agree with all these things, maybe you're right. But I don't agree with any of that. Tyndale replied, I defy the Pope and all of his laws. And if God spares my life before many years go past, I will call the boy that tries to plow to know more of the scriptures than you do. I usually hear that first part quoted. <laughs> it's all about context. It's all about context. See, so he's like, Tyndale's famous for going, I want even a boy who, who, who pulls the plow, I want him to, to be able to read scripture. You go, right. Because I want him to understand it better than you priests do. That's the context of this. So, Tyndale says, all right, the law says I can't do a translation without asking my bishop. So he goes to the bishop and he says, I'd like to translate the Bible into English. Even your own priests don't seem to be following this very well. I want to make sure that everybody can read it. Yes? Is this before or after he says he defies the This would be after. Okay. But, uh, so he said, I'd like to translate this into English. And the, and the bishop said, no, of course not. The law says bishops have to authorize translations. By the way, we never do. Never do. Yes. It passed it by us. And we always say no. So, he went to Germany, because Germany is a happening place. Germany is going to the Catholic authorities, right? So I'm going to Germany. I'm going to go to Worms, and I'm going to get things published there. I'm going to get my English Bible published in Germany, because they're the only ones that will do it. Now, he's a linguist, remember? Oh, by the way, this is... What, did anybody know what Bible book this is? Genesis. Read it to me. Genesis. In the beginning was that word. And that word was with God, and God was that word. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by it, and without it was made nothing, nothing that was that made was. Mm -hmm. So anyway, it's beginning here. But you'll notice even here that spelling is whatever you feel like at any given moment, right? Oh, throw a Y, throw an E, oh, throw another E. No, nothing, nothing. Shouldn't that be another O, nothing? Sure, go ahead. <laughs> at least he did, right? Because we've seen it up to this point, sometimes even in the same verse, they'll go, eh. There's no dictionaries yet. And, and, but even then, you'll be like, the light of men, I ran out of space in this line. The light of me? The light of me, but he's got this little dash over that says I had to drop a letter. Just like up here. And. Yeah. 
AD with a little line over saying there was an N after that. That's what you do. That's a, that's a typographical thing. Anyway, he's also a wordsmith. And so a lot of the Bible words that you were familiar with are actually inventions of Tyndale. They didn't actually exist before him. Um, especially the ones that are that uh, are, are, are that, that, that are built by uh, compound words. They're built by sticking already existing words together. For instance, Passover. There's, this didn't exist as a word before. Um, but it was the word Pesach, when the wrath of God passed over his people. And so, and bringing that to English, Tyndale goes, let's just call it Passover. That's the wrath of God passed over, we'll call it Passover time. Overseer. Brand new English word that didn't exist before Tyndale. He says, well, you're supposed to be watching over the newer converts in the congregation. You're a mature Christian. You're an over-watcher. That's what you do. You're an overseer. Uh, atonement. Brand new English word that didn't exist before Tyndale. What, what did Christ do? Um, well, in terms of um, propitiation, they would start having things that, that had specific uh, overtones. But they also used, like, the original um, the original Hebrew word was cover. And so they would talk about covering your sins. Whereas he says, yeah, but, okay, we don't have an atonement seat that we pour blood over. What exactly does that mean, that he covered your sins? He made atonement. He made at-one-ment for you, which is what atonement is. It's just a compound word of at-one-ment, which is... I love how everybody's like, oh, atonement, that's a big fancy word. You go, it's at one minute. You do realize, and that is exactly what that is. It's not even just a mnemonic device to remember it. You go, no, that's, that's what the, it's, at, it's at one minute. Anyway, um, he wasn't just trying to be a fun linguist. He's trying to at least circumvent Catholicism, if not undermine it by what he was doing. For instance, biblical word episkopos. It's been translated a lot of different ways over the centuries before this. Episkopos. Sometimes people would translate it elder, even though that's a different word. That's presbyteros, which is where we get like Presbyterian things. But um, it was used somewhat synonymously in scripture with presbyteros sometimes, that an episcopos should be a mature Christian, an older Christian, somebody who's been a Christian longer. Um, more often it was translated as bishop, because that's the old English corruption of the word, episcopos. Bishop, 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 is just Episcopos said with a mouthful of marbles. Okay? So, 1 Timothy 3.1, if anyone has set his heart on being a bishop, he desires a noble task. Which means being a bishop is a noble thing, right? Bishops are noble. Being a Catholic bishop, being a bishop in the Roman Catholic Church, how could you ever speak against being a bishop? How could you ever speak against your bishop? Doesn't 1 Timothy 3.1 say that you should honor your bishop here because it's a noble task? So Tyndale says, okay, I don't want people, when they read episcopos in scripture, to automatically think Roman Catholic bishop. Because it's, it's not. That's not the way the word is used in scripture. It doesn't mean bishop. What, what does it mean? Does anybody know what episcopos is? It's a compound word itself in Greek that literally means overlooker. Yep. So he says, okay, I'm going to, if it means one who watches over, let's just call it overseer. Because it can be even somebody in the church, it can be a layperson, can't it? Can't you technically have an elder in the church who isn't a Catholic bishop? Couldn't you technically have an overseer who is there to watch over the newer converts in the flock that isn't ordained? Be a mentor? Yeah. So he's like, it, this could be a lay person. An episcopos is not a bishop that you had to go through this step and 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 become a bishop. No. An episcopos is somebody who watches over a, a, a younger Christian. That makes sense, doesn't it? Rome's furious. They're furious that he went against his bishop and did a translation. But this translation of this word is one of the things they thought was the most infuriating. How dare you tell people that there can be any kind of oversight in the church that isn't part of the hierarchy of Rome. So, he was arrested, strangled, and then burned at the stake. Because he said, let's translate the Bible in English. 
And by the way, I'm pretty sure Episcopalus doesn't mean bishop. So kill him, right? Wacky fun. So it wasn't just us that have had translation wars. It isn't. What'd you say, Nick? So they read it, though. They read it. Yeah, I mean, they read his translation. They read his translation, unfortunately for Tyndale, but, but yes. Okay, at the same time, because like I said, this is a big year, so right? Is that 1526? All 1526. Wow. Uh, 1526, the Ottoman Empire. You know, these dark green guys, right? The Ottoman Empire keeps ex extending its conquests into Europe. They're on a roll, and so they take over Hungary, take over the whole kingdom of Hungary. Everything here green is now Ottoman, Turk. Yeah, it's kind of huge. It's a smidgy bit bigger than the Holy Roman Empire here, isn't it? <laughs> Plus they took over the part of Africa that Portugal had, right? Well, Portugal still has this little smidgy bit, and it's got little bits of round different parts. But yeah, this they're taking over Africa that other Muslims have had. They're taking over everything all over the place. Almost all of Eastern Europe now has been forcibly converted to Islam. Islam means what? No. Islam means obedience. That's what it means. Now, there's a peace that comes from knowing your place, but it, the word Islam means obedience. It's a, 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 it's, I'm not against the concept of being obedient to God, but this is when people go, oh, Islam means peace. You go, no. Salam means peace. It's close, but there's a reason why it's a different word. Anyway, everything up to Vienna Everything up to Vienna this way is, is being forcibly made Islam. So it's, it's bizarre to think of Greece as Islamic and Hungary as Islamic, Poland increasingly being Islamic. But this is the role. In fact, in 1529, we'll talk next week, the Turks have now laid siege to Vienna, and they're going to take Vienna next. This is kind of a huge point in history. Yeah. Christians in Arabia. If you remember, there was a time when this part of the Middle East, Persia, was a hotbed of Christian activity. That's the seat of the strength of Middle Eastern Christianity. So I mean, there's still pockets of Christianity everywhere. All that would, and it's interesting when you when you share that because it's, every once in a while there'll be people that don't don't even realize their own history, and they don't realize there was a point when most Persians were Christian. <coughs> but what's interesting is to talk to the ones that do. They do realize that. Now, they'll tend to say, yes, and then we then we fixed that. You know, they got that, and, but it got better, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it, it changes your perspective when you realize how much things flip-flop. But, well, I was going to say, forcible conversion, not usually the best way to make sure that you have a society that is, in fact, your religion. I was listening and you said obedience, I like obedience slash death. Yeah. Now, if we look at this and we say, I gotta, I gotta be a little preachy for a moment, forgive me, just a moment. If we look at the, at the Muslims and say, forceful conversion, making other people into your version of religion doesn't work. That's naughty. Show me. Charles Martel. Any of that kind of stuff. Any, any of the crusaders that go, we're going to go beat the Holy Land into being Christian. Was that a wise move? Here's where I get preachy. The Pope does it on some level, too. Well, that's coercion, yes. Even today, is the evangelical church guilty of, I'm going to use political coercion to make sure that you live out my version of religion? And then we get very upset when it doesn't work. Why is it that we're allowing people to have abortions when we said that they shouldn't? Because you're not in power anymore. Public opinion is swayed. Didn't you want to win by public opinion? Yes. You lost power. You lost public opinion. You lost the culture war that you started. Is that really what you wanted? You didn't try to save souls. You tried to win political arguments. And you won it for a while. And then once you lost, you've lost it. By the way, you're doing exactly the same crap that they were doing there. We're going to make you do our version of religion. Does that last? Or do you always have pockets of resistance? 
is Poland Muslim today? Bits and pieces, but no. It's a bad way of doing it, and we still do it because we don't learn from history. I'm not saying we shouldn't be involved in politics. What I'm saying is that's the worst way to convert anybody. The best way is how? Relationships. Billy Graham Crusades. No. The best, again, love Billy Graham. Glad for the Crusades. Statistically, the best way to save large numbers of souls is to save one. For each of you to invest in helping one person come to know the Lord. Not share a gospel tract with them. Invest your life into their lives. Be in relationship. There is, but statistically, when, when you get... Billy Graham Crusades and Louis Palau Crusades are, are, are the two best at doing this, of making sure that there's follow-up. But if you look at the statistics of how many people a year after one of those crusades are still involved in church, still involved in any kind of religion, it's kind of scary. Because you sit there and you go, I, you know, a thousand people came to know the Lord. You know, six months later, 500 of them are actually doing anything with anything. A year later, it's usually like 1% of the people that were actually making a decision for Christ are still doing anything about it a year later. Yes, yes. And so, um, statistically, and, and it seems counterintuitive, but instead of doing large crusades, which aren't bad, and it gets the word out, and, and, and like I said, Billy Graham and Louis Palau crusades are, are, are usually the best at making sure that there are connections with local churches, that there's follow-ups and things like that. Still, though, the best way to reach large numbers of people is to do it one-on-one. -on -one. If 100 people in a church invest in, a, in, in 100 people, at the end of the year, you'll have 200 people involved in, 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 in Christ. If those 200 people each invest in 200 people, at the end of the year, you'll have 400 people involved in Christ. So, I mean, it, it's, even if you have half, even if you have 10% involved, you go, it's still better than in large numbers. But we still tend to like to do it in large numbers. Why do we like to do it? Why do we like to do it by changing laws, by controlling politics or by large crusades. How is that easier? Because when you start investing in a relationship, it takes more than just a moment. It takes, you know, every day that you're walking through our lives. The irony is, you know I'm a big proponent of Vacation Bible School. Strong proponent of this. It is so much more complicated to just invest, invest actively, long-term, longitudinally, with one person. It's so much easier just to do vacation Bible school. And we go, no, we throw ourselves into it. We spend months probably, we throw ourselves into it for a week. You go, right. And then you flop for 10 months and go, oh. All right, let's start gearing back up for it again. The longitudinal life-sharing thing takes more time and energy. It's more complicated and it's more successful. Yes. That's, I guess sometimes too, if we go in and, um, and, and convert large numbers of people at one time and then leave, that leaves the group for like the Mormon or the witnesses or even some Orthodox Christians to then go in and tell them, well, I'm glad that they saved you. Let me show you how to do it. Well, and, and, and we'll invest. And, and Nikki's referring to, we've talked about this specifically, Mormons specifically target areas that have been evangelized by Christian missionaries. I mean, it's part of the basic Mormon missionary tack, is to figure out where in Central America have Christian evangelical missionaries already hit? Well, they hit this place, they hit this place really hard. Okay, then that's where we send the Mormon missionaries. Exactly, exactly. And that, and that build on a framework of truth. Um, a good Mormon missionary will tell you, you know what? I think Mormonism is true. I think you should feel like Mormonism is true. Tell you what. Let's pray. And if God lays on your heart that his holy word is true, if God lays on your heart that he exists, if God lays on your heart that the Bible is the inspired word of God, then you should become a Mormon too. Wait, you're co-opting my prayer! That's not fair! It's not fair! Anyway. But, not malicious. 
it's not that the, it's not necessarily that the the, uh, the the Mormon missionary you're talking to is trying to be tricky, sneaky, malicious. They're like, this works. This draws people in and saves them. Pardon me? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I don't want to do that, but you know, the the month that Bill Clinton was president the first time, uh -huh. I remember getting a letter from James Dobson who focused on the family, saying, you know, here we've had these Republicans and it hasn't changed the law of abortion, and you know, we named all these things that you know it wasn't like we had everything great going there. So I've always thought about that that you know politics it isn't just the way to go. Yep. Be involved. Make sure that your your political representatives reflect your political views. You get to do that. Just realize that's the least effective way of changing the person involved. Okay, 1527 it's the end of the Renaissance. Technically we've been overlapping with the Renaissance up to this point. But this is the year that the historians tend to say that's the end of the Renaissance. We've got this Italian Medici Pope, Clement VII, new Medici Pope, doesn't really care much about Spain. Because remember, Spain is where the Borgias come from. Borgias hate Medici. Medici hate the Borgias. Not a, good, not a good clump. So he decides France is shrinking, so I'm going to side with France over Spain and over the Holy Roman Empire. Especially since the Roman Empire is influential, but but um, Spain has money that they're not necessarily funneling into the Roman Empire, and France has money. I think we're going to, I think, I think our best bet fellow here is France. So Carlos took his armies in the field to fight against France. He couldn't fight against Rome, that would be naughty, right? But he can fight against France, and they want France, but he had no money to pay his troops with. So your Holy Roman Empire troops... You have been fighting in northern Italy against the, the French troops. What do you do? You want money. What do you do? Loot and pillage. Rome. So they sack Rome. The troops of the Holy Roman Emperor sack Rome for several days to make up for their lost pay. Three days, which appears to be how long you should sack Rome, because that's how long the Vandals sacked Rome, too. So sack Rome. Loot, pillage, rape, do whatever you want for three days. Um, the only reason they didn't arrest Clement, because they wanted to, they, 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 they laid siege to the Vatican. Who held off these Holy Roman troops? Who defends the Pope? The Swiss Guard. 186 Swiss Guard held off over a thousand crazed soldiers. That should be a movie. Except that they'd have to dress silly. But that should be. No, they didn't look like this back then. This is a, this is, they haven't only looked like this for about 100 years. Um, but 186 Swiss guards stand there and get slaughtered, defending the Pope so that he has time to sneak away uh, and cloister himself up in a, in, a, in a castle relatively nearby. Tense guys, the Swiss guard. Okay, afterwards, the army left, and Carlos goes, Sorry, 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 sorry. I didn't want him to do that. Do over. Sorry. Clement paid a ton of money so that he could be let out of his castle. Um, and, the, and the city goes back to being papal states. Everything's fine now, right? Everything's fine. You go, no, it's never quite the same again. After the Roman Empire invades Rome and sacks it for three days, and they try to arrest the Pope, and his guard gets decimated protecting him from the Holy Roman Emperor's troops, you don't just go back to going, okay, let's go back to playing squash. Doesn't work like that, right? Nobody likes each other anymore. Nobody's willing to work with each other anymore. It changes everything from this point forward. You lose a lot of revenue. You lose complete sense of authority. Nobody, even in the Roman Empire, has any respect for the Pope at the moment. Tossed a ton of artwork that's gotten funneled into Germany now. Um, generally considered by historians to be the end of the Renaissance. When Rome gets sacked, and everybody says, I don't care about classicism anymore. I don't care about, because remember, the Renaissance is all about Rome is cool, right? If you have to synopsize the Renaissance, it's not really a rebirth of knowledge, it's a rebirth of interest in Greco-Roman classicism. We're going to make our buildings look like old Greco-Roman buildings. Our, our, we're going to make statues that look like they were made a thousand years ago in Athens. We're going we're, we're to go back and read Aristotle and Plato and things. 
Now they're like, what works now? I want realpolitik. What works now? What do we want to do? What is our thing? So a much more contemporary-minded mindset and, and, and less interested in let's do things the way the Greeks and Romans would have done. So, like I said, 1527, end of the Renaissance in terms of an era. Speaking of Saxe, uh, also the same year that Incan ruler uh, died of smallpox, because remember that the, the Europeans did bring smallpox. We're going to talk more about this. It didn't decimate as much people as, as people tend to think. But it did bring some of, the, some of these diseases, and he died, and he left his kingdom to his son, Atahualpa, this Incan kingdom down here, right? Last week we talked about the Aztecs, today it's the Incas. Now, Atahualpa was not a particularly strong leader, and he opened the door for uh, Francisco Pizarro to seize power down there, this Spanish conquistador, um, because he's, he's got this divided kingdom with a weak leader. There's a Spanish-Dominican friar named Vincente de Valverde uh, that tried to share the gospel, went to Atahualpa, explained the Bible to him, and Atahualpa took a Bible from him, flung it to the ground, and said it's gibberish. I want nothing to do with this. Get out of my sight. So Valverde goes back to Spanish-held territory and tells Pizarro, you know what, this guy's a mongrel dog, he doesn't care about anything, he's got 80,000 men that he's planning to mass against your 160 gods. Which is probably true, actually. Because Atahualpa's like, if this is what you guys believe, I can take you out easy. So Pizarro goes, alright, I'm going to attack first. They're massing for an attack. I've got only 160 guys against their 80,000. But we have horses and we have cannons and we have guns. They don't. They have sticks with obsidian stuck in them. I think we're going to win. And he just slaughters them. Just annihilates their, their army. So Otawalba says, all right, I, I, don't kill me, don't kill me, don't kill me. I'll give you a ransom room, 22 feet by 17 feet. I'm going to fill it with gold. That's a lot of gold. 22 feet by 17 feet filled with gold if you if you keep me alive. And so Pizarro goes, yeah, okay. No, it's, 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 it's a ton of gold. What's, what's the matter? Why, why don't you think it's going to work well? Yeah, he could decide to do that. Okay. But yeah, okay, and I'm still going to execute you. Now, I will say, well, Verde came up to him and said, I can commute your sentence. I can get him to commute your sentence. You're not going to be burned at the stake if you accept Christianity, if you become baptized. Because as we know, coercive baptism, that works, right? That's right, man. So, Atahualpa was baptized, which is why in Christian kindness, they strangled him before they burned him at the stake. Right? That's commuting the sentence-ish, isn't it? Now, I sit there and I go, poor Atahualpa. Um, <laughs> kind of stinks to be him. You keep, they keep going, all right, if you give me a lot of gold, I won't kill you. No, I'm still going to kill you. We're going to burn you at the stake. Tell you what, I won't burn you at the stake. You won't burn to death if you become a Christian. Okay, I'm a Christian now. Okay, so we're going to strangle you and then burn you, but you weren't burned to death. That's like... Except he wasn't a particularly good ruler anyway. Um, and and uh, his entire society just kind of fell apart overnight as a result of, of, of them being uh, defeated like that. So where'd the rest of the kingdom go? Did he have another son that had well, he did, Yeah, he had two sons. Uh, the other one had, um, I think, the southern half of the kingdom. And it lingered on for a little bit, but it, the whole thing just kind of broke apart into all sorts of little clumps and then eventually into nothing. The, the whole the Maya and, and Inca societies kind of drifted back into the jungles, which is why we keep running into, people keep finding like Incan ruins, things you can write, because it just kind of ceased to be. Anyway, speaking of executions, um, Felix Mons was arrested in Zurich and sentenced to death by Swingley for the crime of rebaptism, because they found out that they were rebaptizing people, and we've just discussed this as being heretical. So he was bound hand and foot in January and thrown into Lake Zurich to drown. He used to be a nice guy. What happened to him? I don't know. Archduke Fernando declared that for these second baptism people, these Anabaptist advocates, a third baptism of drowning. That's the best way of doing it. And this became the running joke. This is the most common way of killing Anabaptists at this time, is third baptism. Yes?
Um, he is the he is the Luther of, of Zurich at this particular moment. He doesn't himself have any political power, but he's got a lot of sway. Everybody listens to him for spiritual guidance, and the entire uh, and, and uh, Fernando likes him, and the city council of Zurich trusts Swingley. And they're like, well, if you say he's a heretic and he should die, then he should die. So what Felix becomes um, the, the first Anabaptist reformer to be martyred by other reformers. <coughs> so this is, this is turning over a new leaf here in 1527. But he's not the last one. We're going to end with this little thing. Speaking of martyrdom, same year that Michael Sattler was executed. Now he was a guy who it, it was a Benedictine monk. He left Germany because of the Peasants' War, because he's like, I, I, this is wrong. This violence against one another. You don't kill one another, you convert one another. You love one another. He's an Anabaptist, he resettles in Switzerland. He's the one who, who chaired the commission that created something called the Schleifheim Confession, which is a seven-point confession of faith that the Anabaptists had, talking about things like uh, their views on baptism, the fact that only believers should take communion, because isn't that what Paul is talking about? that violence should be avoided at all costs, etc. This is what we're going to nail down. So, Fernando uh, had him arrested, along with several others, and charged with heresy. Now, I know we're over, but let me just do this real quick. His, what he was charged with and how he responded is kind of a wonderful microcosm of this time. First charge. Anabaptists have, a, have acted contrary to the imperial mandate written to, against following Lutheranism. And Sadler said, I ain't Lutheran. Luther wouldn't call me a Lutheran. I disagree with Luther, too. I'm not breaking any imperial mandate. That was against Lutheranism. I'm not a Lutheran. Charge number two. Anabaptists believe that the real body of the Christ the Lord is not present in the sacrament. He said, yeah, doesn't the Bible say that Christ descended into heaven and is sitting at the right hand of the Father? He's not in the bread. He's in heaven. Third. Anabaptists believe that infant baptism is of no avail to salvation. He said, well, wait a minute. Doesn't Jesus say whoever believes in his baptized will be saved? Didn't Peter say that baptism is the pledge of a good conscience toward God? How can getting moist save you? It can't be salvific. Charge number four. Baptists reject extreme unction. That's when they put oil on you as you're dying. This is part of the final blessing of things. And he says, we have, nothing to, we have no problem with the oil. God made the oil. That's great. But you do realize that no blessing of a pope changes the oil in any way. It's still just oil. If it's medicinal, that's great, but it doesn't change anything to moisten somebody with oil blessed by a pope. So the Lutheran Church was thinking it being blessed by a pope made it special? Holy oil does. But now no, we're talking about the Zwingliists. Okay. Um, now, charge number five, Anabaptists condemn the mother of God when we all know that she was holy and blessed and had special powers. And they're like, no, 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 she's a great woman. She's worthy of being blessed. She's not the mediatrix between us and God. That is not a scriptural viewpoint. In fact, it flies in the face of Scripture that we have one mediator. Chart number six, Anabaptists refused to swear before authorities. He quotes Matthew and James where Jesus specifically says, don't swear. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. We just talked about this in the Bible study. It's a little bit more complicated than he's giving it here, but still, this is where he's going with this. Chart number seven, Sadler had personally abandoned his monastic vows and gotten married. His argument, um, depending on the, the account that you read, he said, uh, I, I, I realize that I'm a sinful man, and it's better to marry than to burn with passion, therefore I got married. Or, with a different account, he said, do you know any celibate monks and priests? How many celibate monks and priests do you know? I just followed scripture. They just follow their lusts. Charge number eight. That Anabaptists say they'd rather kill Christians than Turks. This one I'm actually going to read. He said, let me clarify this. If the Turks should come, we ought not to resist them, for it's written, Thou shalt not kill. We must not defend ourselves against the Turks and others of our persecutors, but are to beseech God with earnest prayer and repel and resist them that way. But when I said, if warring were right, and I don't think that it is, but if it were, to be honest, I'd rather take to the field against the so-called Christians who persecute, apprehend, and kill pious Christians than against the Turks. When I said that, it was for this reason. The Turk knows nothing of the Christian faith. He's a Turk after the flesh. But you, who would be Christians, and who would make boast of your, of your faith in Christ, when you guys persecute the pious witnesses of Christ, you're Turks after the Spirit. Oh. They don't know what they're doing. You do. 
If I had to go to the field against somebody, I'd go to the field against you guys rather than them. But I don't think we should go against anybody. So he's found guilty and sentenced to torture and death by the swing links, by reformers. The sentence read this. Michael Sattler shall be committed to the executioner. The latter shall take him to the square and there first cut out his tongue and then forge him fast to a wagon and there with glowing iron tongs twice tear pieces from his body. Then on the way to the site of execution five times more as above and then burn his body to powder as an arch heretic. Welcome to the Reformation. This isn't Inquisition. This isn't Catholics. This is Reformed theology at work. By this time, Hoogmeyer had recanted his recantation. <laughs> like, I, I, I was scared. I was in pain. I, I would say anything to make the rack stop. So I'm going to start preaching again. So the next year, Twingley oversaw the slow torture and killing of Hoogmeyer, as well as his wife. That's where we'll leave off. Remember when I said last week, I'm fighting the urge to call this week lots and lots of people die. But this is what's going on. Because revolution begets revolution, and because people are sitting there going, I don't like what I hear you saying, the best way I can think of to make you stop saying things I don't like is to hurt you as badly as I possibly can, and to do it publicly so that nobody ever believes your heresy. Again, um, somebody asked me one time in seminary, when we were discussing theology, they said, well, you're an Anabaptist. And I said, yeah, actually I am. I'm, I'm an Anabaptist. They said, well, my people would have burned you at the stake 500 years ago. You know, would you have said? Brian? Pardon? But they said, uh, you know, my people would have burned you at the stake 500 years ago. Uh, and I, I said, my last words, because they said, would you have really made this biggest stink back then? I'm like, it's, I didn't make a big stink about it. But I know what I believe, and I know why I believe it. My last words would be, you know, if, I, if you left me a tongue, this is the yeah. stupidest reason to kill somebody. That if you go, you actually believe that baptism should be done by people that can pledge a good conscience? You're like, that's, that's what the Bible says. I don't hate you for doing it differently. Why are you killing me for doing it? This is the dumbest reason to kill somebody. And then and, and you have to fry me. But, uh, so I look at this point in history, and I have a special place in my heart for how many people are dying simply because they genuinely saw that this is what scripture is saying. Whether you agree with their conclusions or not, you need to respect that at least this point in the game, at this point in the game, they don't stay this way. But at this point in the game, these are kind of the white hats. These are the kind of the guys going, can we do the right thing for the right reasons? There's always some white hats and black hats. Court Swingley keeps switching hats. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you I thank you that there's always truth. Your truth has never changed. We change in our apprehension of it, but your truth has never changed. And there's always truth floating around. There's always pockets of people that are trying desperately to get back to your word. At whatever theological tradition we find ourselves, whatever direction we come in, I pray, Lord, help us to see how many people were willing to go through horror to give us the opportunity to stand where we stand today and to speak truth to our brothers and sisters, and to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord. If our spiritual forefathers were willing to die to preach truth, help us not to be comfortable staying silent. In Jesus' name.